0: Well, hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett. I'm a leadership speaker and a retired Air Force Colonel. It is my tremendous honor to welcome our very special guest for this month's episode, Herschel Woody Williams. Mr. Williams served in the Marine Corps during World War II where he earned his medal for bravery above and beyond the call of duty during the famous Battle of Iwo Jima. After serving in the Marine Corps and reserves for 20 years, he continued his life of service, first with 33 years at the Department of Veteran Affairs, and then through the establishment of the Woody Williams Foundation, which honors, recognizes, and serves Gold Star families and the legacies of their loved ones who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Mr. Williams also has the distinction of being the last living recipient of the Medal of Honor from World War II, and at 97 years young, has more energy and drive than just about anyone I know. So with that, it is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Woody Williams to the Mission Inspire podcast. Good afternoon, sir.
1: Well, thank you. What a pleasure it is to be here.
0: It's fantastic. I've been I've been reading up on you. You are like we were just talking. We're both October babies. We're the youngest of all the siblings, so we have a lot in common. But that's about where it ends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, actually, I will say I, I did learn something about you that um, you thought the brown or the green army uniforms were the ugliest things in town, and so that's why you went to the Marines. Is that correct? That's correct. I do brothers
1: that were drafted in early 1942, and they both were fortunate enough to be near that they could get home once in a while over a weekend and they had to wear that ugly brown uniform and i sure didn't appreciate that i wanted i wanted to be in dress blues
0: all right well and you did that as did i my dad was in the army air corps so uh he was one of those guys walking around those ugly brown things so (laughs) uh, it's good to know that we both made the right decision going the blue services but uh But so even before joining the Marine Corps, you saw firsthand the ultimate sacrifice that were made by service members and their families through a job delivering telegrams for Western Union. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, I'd already quit my job thinking I could walk into a Marine Corps recruiting office and just take off and go to the Marine Corps, but it didn't work that way. So uh, first of all, they turned me down on my first attempt one month after my 18th birthday, because I was too short. So uh, I was just gonna wait to be drafted after that. If I couldn't go in the Marine Corps, I was gonna wait until, just to see what happened. But in early 43, they took the height requirement down so that they could take shorter people, including me. And the recruiter looked us up and uh, asked if we still wanted to go, and I said, yes. So uh, he said, well, come on back in. We can take you now. So it was in uh, about January of 43 that I joined. But they they had waiting periods at that time. There were so many people uh, on the East Coast wanting to get into the Marine Corps that they couldn't find drill instructors and housing and that sort of thing for them. So they had a waiting list. And then. Somewhere along the way, they decided, well, if we couldn't take them all in Paris Island, we'll just put them on board a train and send them to California. So that's what they did with me. Wow. <laughs> so
0: well, I, I, love the, I love the fact that, go ahead, go ahead, sir. Yeah.
1: While I was waiting for my time to, to leave, I had to have a job. I had a friend who was a dispatcher for a cab bus company. We'd gone to school together for about eight years. So I went to Vic and I said, I need some work. I need some income. I didn't have a nickel. And uh, he said, we need cab drivers because he said they're quitting so rapidly. We can't keep enough cab drivers to, to service the people. So I was only, of course, 19 years old and illegally driving a cab at 19 because you had supposed to be 21. Somehow he got me a driver's license to show us 21 so then I could drive a cab. And the <laughs> War Department at that time were releasing telegrams late in the afternoon of those that had been killed recently. <clears throat> and uh, it came in really to the Western Union office on what was known in those days as a sickle tape. And they take it off, put it on a telegram sheet, put it in an envelope that the War Department had furnished them if the War Department was own address. So it looked like, instead of a telegram, it looked like it was coming from the War Department. Got it. That the Western Union people had no way of delivering it, so they would call the cab company, and they would assign us then. they just call us and say, we've got a telegram to be delivered to so-and-so, and we'd go pick it up. And... I took a number of those to families that had just lost a loved one. There had been enough come in, this is in in early 43, there had been enough notices come in that most of the communities, and particularly in small communities, once they saw the envelope, they already knew the news was not good. Right. And as a 19-year-old, Delivering those and seeing the the reaction and the grief, I, I really didn't know what to do about it. <clears throat> uh, in my day, men would never put their arms around a, a lady. You wouldn't, other than your mother, you never hugged anybody. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So uh, it, it's rather traumatic to to deliver those and. Uh, Of course, I knew what they were, but uh, the reaction was very, very dramatic. And so that was my experience of of delivering those telegrams prior to going in for Brainport.
0: Wow, yeah, that would be a formative experience, especially using a fake ID as a cab driver to to deliver that kind of uh, passenger, if you will. Um, Okay, so the height requirements were lowered or improved so that you could join and you still wanted to join. Um, So we're going to fast forward to your time in the military to the island of Iwo Jima in February of 1945. And of course, one of the most historic battles in American history made even more iconic by Joe Rosenthal's picture and the raising of the American flag on top of Mount Suribachi, which I understood uh, you got to see, but You were the one of the Marines on the grounds there, and it's hard to imagine what your experience must have been. So I'm hoping you can help put us in your boots during that battle. Okay.
1: If I could back up just a little bit. Yes, sir. division, there were three Marine divisions involved, the third, fourth, and fifth Marine divisions. Each division had about 20,000 Marines in it. And we were the third Marine division, and we were told on the way from Guam to Iwo aboard ship that we probably would never get off ship because oh. they thought the campaign would last three to five days. They had no intelligence to say that there was somewhere around 22,000 uh, individuals already on the island.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that uh, we wouldn't uh, uh, be out in the ocean Waiting to go in if they were needing us. We did the same thing previous to Guam for Saipan. We sat out in the ocean on a ship, waiting to see if the Marines, the second Marines on Saipan needed help. They didn't, so we never got off ship there either. But on the uh, first night of the first day, after all the injuries of loss the first day, Uh, we were told we are going ashore.
0: Okay.
1: And so we got off the boat at dawn into Higgins boats with with the intention of going ashore. But they were still uh, pinned to the beach. They couldn't get off the beach. And so we rode Higgins boats all day long waiting for the opportunity to go in. And since they couldn't, Since there was no ground, no place to go, they sent us back aboard ship for another night. Then the second day, by that time, the uh, 4th Marines had broken through to Mount Suribachi, and that gave us some room to come in, and we went in on the second day. When we arrived on the beach, (coughs) they were still shelling the beach, They were still, sending mortars and artilleries to the beach area because Marines were still coming in. Mm -hmm. And uh, our objective was to cross the first airfield because on the other side of the airfield from where we were, they had built a great number of reinforced concrete pillboxes. Okay. To check the airfield. And our assignment, our mission was cross the airfield attack the pillboxes, boxes, eliminate the enemy within those, so we could have continued to advance forward, and we became the spearhead okay. of that group. And once we crossed the airfield, and we lost a tremendous number of mines because there was no protection, right. and uh, we just jump up and run a few yards and hit the deck and do it again, and we made several attacks to the kill boxes, uh, they had a whole field of fire that they could shoot at. All we had was the atmosphere in the core box. So our, time, our targets were very small and we'd hit and then we'd have to back off because we'd lose so many Marines. Uh, finally, the company commander <coughs> who was Captain Donald Beck, uh, he called, called us back off the line uh, because we had lost so many people. Uh, And then he called for a meeting. But he called for a meeting of all NCOs. We had very few left. He only had two officers out of seven left. So we joined in a big shell crater. Uh, They finally told me I had to go, even though I was a corporal, not an NCO. Yep. because I was the only flamethrower operator left in our company. There were six individuals in this little special weapons unit. We'd been trained to be a flamethrower operator or demolition guy. So you could either blow it up or burn it up. <laughs> those six hit, were lost, also either killed or wounded. So now I'm the only flamethrower operator in the company. And Though I was a corporal, the company manager said, I want in here. So I went to the meeting and he was talking to all of us, of trying to plan where we're going to do what we're going to do. And he said to me, do you think you could do something with the flamethrowers? And as far as he is, he was concerned, we hadn't used flamethrowers us to that point. Hmm. Is a... It Right. Platoons or the uh, first, second, third platoon of the company, they were strictly rifle right persons and they had never had an opportunity to use the frame for us because they huh. were pinned to the boots so much.
0: Right.
1: So, uh, some, some of the Marines said my response was, I'll try. And he told me I could take four Marines, select four Marines to help me. And uh, see what I do. So I selected two that I had never seen before. I had no idea where they were, who they were, where they came from. They were just Marines. too. Really. Yep. Then the other two I selected were previously in the same squad I was. I knew that. And so I took the four, and we started moving forward toward the pillboxes, you know? and during that process of four hours, uh, the two I didn't know sacrificed their lives. Mm. um, But it was a job, and as far as I'm concerned, I was just doing what I was supposed to do.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you bring up an interesting point, too, about, you know, not being an officer, not being an NCO, but um, so much of it, in life i think in general is is it's not what the rank that we wear in our sleeve it's the courage or the the devotion to duty that we have in our heart you know and that and again you're you're the right man for the job and you put your team together you may not know them you do know them but you go out and do a job and um i you know it's sad that those two had to put down their life but they sacrificed it for you and you were able to accomplish something um, can you give us a little bit about what you did with the combination of the the flamethrower that you had and the pillboxes that you were attacking, um, and and how you made a big difference that day with that those that combination?
1: Yeah, uh, let me back up a moment because in uh, in your introduction you mentioned the flag raising. I did not see the flag go up. Uh, we were we hadn't crossed the airfield yet.
0: Okay. <clears throat> uh,
1: I jokingly said, I think I had my head buried in the sand, but uh, I was facing away from Mount Shirabachi. I was looking the other direction. But all of a sudden, the Marines around me began saying something about a flag, and some of them began shooting their weapons into the air. And then I turned and looked at Shirabachi. I hadn't paid any attention to it up until that point. But when I did the second flag, which was a four by six, had just hit the peak. Wow. The wind was going strong and it was sticking as straight out as it could be. And of course, I started doing the same thing they were doing, you know, celebrating the fact that old Roy is now fine and not fine. So yeah. uh. When I finally placed the Marines where I wanted them and gave them instructions that whatever pillbox I'm attacking, they are to shoot at that aperture so that the enemy can't shoot at me.
0: Right.
1: <clears throat> and uh, I picked a, another guy to go with me as a pole charge man, we called him at that time. It was just a piece of wood with a whole lot of explosives to take to the end of it. And their job was that once you burned a cave out or a pillbox uh, was to run in and set off the explosive to seal the cave or to make sure that those within the pillbox didn't survive. Sure. And I picked one of the squad members that had been in my squad. But uh, we were just getting ready to attack the first pillbox when we got hit with a bullet right here. We so penetrated the tunnel, went around the liner inside, and threw him back in the hole we just crawled out of. Wow. That took care of him. He, he, he was the one. So I didn't have a pole charge man after I had to do my own explosives and my own playing for so I didn't have anybody to help me. But the unusual, unique thing about the uh, first pillbox was it was a huge pillbox. And uh, there were a great number of individuals in there mm-hmm. and uh, I'm crawling toward it and uh, they're shooting at me with a bamboo and the bullets were ricocheting off of my flame for Wow. Fortunately, they ricocheted up and still down and I wouldn't be talking with you. But <clears throat> once that started, I crawled off to the side to try to get out of the line of fire and I did. But when I did that, I saw a little bit of smoke coming out of the top of the fuel box, hmm. and told me there had to be an opening up there somewhere. Right. <laughs> so I crawled around to the back of the fuel box, where they didn't have any aperture on it. up on top, no. and uh, there was a pipe there that was a smoke pipe, pretty or a breathing pipe. Uh-huh. They cooked in there; they lived in the fuel box. So that opening uh, went in, uh, <clears throat> opened into the top of the toolbox. So I just put flame down the part. Wow! Yes. <clears throat> that eliminated those within, and uh, that was my first my first toolbox So I continued to uh, work with flame thrower. Lasted 72 seconds if you fired it openly without turning it off, but we had claimed that we used uh, two to, to three or four second bursts to right. uh, shuttle off because that way, we, out of four and a half gallons of fuel, we could get a great number of shots, and <clears throat> that, that's how we were trained, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So, let me know maybe use the flame for more than just one time. But in the process, according to the witnesses, I, I don't know. I have no memory that I can bring back, according to the witnesses of other Marines. Uh, I used up six frame doors that day. And wow. Eliminated, according to them. Uh, enemy within seven of the pillboxes. <clears throat> Uh, some of it I remember, some of it I don't.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, one other occasion that I remember exceedingly well is uh, I'm approaching the toolbox almost close enough to where I'm ready to put some flame through the aperture. And uh, they either ran out of ammunition or decided they didn't want to be in there. and I went close enough. So they in charge of outside. Wow. Uh, five or six of them to try to get me before I could yep. get them. and uh, I still had fuel and flame, so uh I eliminated them before the painted. They Those two things are very vivid in my mind. Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine that's uh is a traumatic experience as well, just to, to again the the we don't have that hand-to-hand combat anymore. We don't have that up close and personal combat like that anymore. So I can only imagine how formative and how traumatic that to relive it is. So thank you for for doing that for us to let us know what you went through um, and to save so many lives. And I know many lives are sacrificed, but you in the end, a lot more lives were were saved by what you did, which it's only fitting that you would receive the Medal of Honor. So how did you learn um, that you would receive the Medal of Honor? Where were you? Because it was a few months later, right? Because this is in February at Iwo Jima and then October is when you were notified. Is that right?
1: So when we left Iwo, we went straight back to the not reoccupied the place that we had left. <clears throat> I had never heard of the Medal of Honor. Oh. I didn't even know it existed. And I had no clue that anybody was doing anything. Uh, I was interviewed by a couple of uh, War correspondents of what went on that day. And some of the other Marines were also interviewed. But uh, so far as being recommended for the Medal of Honor, I knew nothing about that. And and until September, early September, as far as I was concerned, we're retraining from jungle warfare to street warfare. That's what we started doing as soon as we came back from Udina. Mm-hmm. Into a city, you, to into, uh, you don't jungle or open territory so we had to train how do you go down a street and through a window and through a door and you know just all together a different type of money you know, right the first sergeant called me to the office and he said uh, we had one set of tackies well, Suntans, we call them today, but they're khaki to us back then. <laughs> we never wore them except on Saturday morning inspections. We'd have to iron them on Friday night, have them all ship-shaped for Saturday morning inspection, and then they'd go back in the sea bag and get all wrinkled again, you know, because they never no right. walked anything like that. Right. We told them to go on the khaki. And get back here as quickly as you can. You're going to go see the general.
0: Uh-oh.
1: And the football, Why would a football be going to see the general? And I <laughs> said, the And he said, I don't know. Those are my orders. That's what they told me. Okay. So I went back to my tent and got the iron
0: out
1: and ironed the khaki and came back. And when I got back, there was a jeep sitting there with a driver in it. He said, that's, he's going to take me to the general court. I kept trying to figure out what in the world that I do that would make me being called to the general's quarters. Corporals don't go to general's quarters, I'll assure you. me in the Marine Corps anyway.
0: <laughs> Not for anything good.
1: <laughs> but that's right, it couldn't be good, you know? <laughs> uh, when we got to the general quarters, and I had never even been in that part of the of the island, I didn't know where it was or, or anything. I had seen him at a distance when occasionally he would join us on a march. You know, he, he'd get to the head of the, the company and march first. But I really had never seen him up close. And when I got there, uh, there was Colonel, a full colonel, standing in the yard outside the tent, and uh, he said, uh, told me what to do. Uh, Take my cover off of my head, put it in my hand, make sure the emblem shows, the Marine Corps emblem shows, and walk in and then just do what he tells you to do. I am scared to death. I have no idea why I am there. And I walked through the door, he had a door on his tent, we didn't have any door on our camp, but I walked through the door and up to his desk and snapped to the attention And <clears throat> he finally told me at ease. And then he began telling me that I was going to be sent back to the States, to the White House. You don't don't you, know, you? Well, how come? <laughs> You're just standing and listening. You know. And he, if he mentioned the Medal of Honor during that talk or instructions, it didn't mean a thing in the world to me, because I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was, why it would be awarded or anything. Yeah. I made the comparison 10 years ago, if you'd have said to me uh, uh, some of the words that we used today, uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> I would have known exactly what that was 10 years ago. Right. It it, it wouldn't have meant anything if you'd have said it to me. But the thing that stuck was I get to go home. I don't what else he said, I get to go home. And so we're back and got the cheap, and then they began arranging for me to be flown back to Hawaii. And there I would uh, fly from there to the States.
0: Wow. So, okay. So then you you got called into the general's office, then you got called into the general's tent with the door, but then you got called to the White House uh, to receive your medal. And so that's also a new experience. So what was that like? Well,
1: of course, I never dreamed I'd ever even see a president in my life. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: As a country boy from West Virginia, you don't have a chance to meet the presidents of the United States, and uh, we had a little bit of fortunate in that we got to uh, Washington on the third of October. The ceremony wasn't until the fifth, and there were twelve other individuals there, all to receive the Medal of Honor from Guam, Saipan, and and Ewo, and and so some of them had heard. Of the Medal of Honor, none of them had ever seen one or anything of that nature. Some of them had some idea because we had we had colonels and people with some rank in the group, so we got a little bit of education there. But still, didn't know what the ceremony was going to be at the White House. So they turned all on the bus, took us to the White House, and. Here we are what is now the Rose Garden, but it was just yard at that time. Wow. We're absolutely scared to death. I said, well, I don't mind what am I doing here? You know. Uh, fortunately, they told us before we got there that we could bring guests. Uh, so I took my mother. Uh, my father was deceased, so I took my mother and my <clears throat> and my uh, future wife. Right. We'd uh, never heard the word uh, fiancé. We didn't know that word back then. <laughs> but my girlfriend with me, and so they were able to attend the ceremony. And uh, we're, we're still doing everything alphabetical in the ring for. And, uh, w is pretty close to N. We had one guy after me, his name was Zimmer. <laughs> So, by the time he got to me on the W's, I'm the number 12 of the individuals. I'm shaking so bad I don't know. I barely made it to the president's podium (laughs) (laughs) of mortars. But uh, I don't remember much of what he said, really. Yeah. But uh, one thing I do remember is. And he said this in different ways to different individuals. I would rather have this medal than to be president. That stuck with me. Wow. Basically, the only thing I remember him saying.
0: Yeah.
1: uh, One of the photographs shows that he's he's got his left hand holding my Uh medal. the hand is on my shoulder. And I think it was to keep me jumping out of my shoes. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> what do you feel?
0: <laughs> wow. Can't even imagine. Golly. So, you know, we're going back to, again, you know, these these medals, they're, they're, they're not awarded, they're earned, or they're not, you know, people don't say, I won the Medal of Honor. You're a recipient of that. Um, and you've had a life of service again, when you're a cab driver, delivering the telegrams, that service when you're in the Marines. And you saw a lot of your fellow Marines, you mentioned, that fell during the Battle of Iwo Jima. How does that impact you, and how does it drive you through your continued life of service in the decades since then?
1: Well, I did learn uh, shortly before I got uh, discharged from the Marine Corps. Of the two individuals, didn't know who they were, didn't know their names, uh, that they had been killed during that, that time. Mm-hmm. And I have said from the very beginning that the medal belongs to that. I have said, I am just the caretaker of them. They earned the medal for me. And I wear it in their honor not mine, I was just doing that for which other Marines had trained me to do. But they made the sacrifice protected me. And I've always emphasized that and continue to do so. Uh, <clears throat> so it changed my life completely. I was a sure. peaceful, shy, country boy. And all of a sudden now, I'm a public figure. I'm appearing before people and asking all, or being asked all kinds of questions and having to speak and all that that I had never dreamed I would be doing. And so I took on a new, really a new life. And the VA uh, had a program back at that time that recipients of the Medal of Honor could be hired in the VA as veterans counselors uh, without going through all the procedures that you normally have to go through. Right, and they called me <clears throat> sometime later part of November of '45, uh, uh, asking me if I wanted to go to wanted to go to work for the VA. I'd never heard of the VA. I didn't even know such a place existed, wow. And we only had one place in the whole state of West Virginia at that time that was a VA facility, and it was 230 miles from my home. I never heard tell of it, didn't even know it existed. And when the person called me and asked me if I wanted to come to work for the VA, I said, well, what would I be doing? And he said, well, you'd be in an office and you'd be talking to people and counseling people and you'd have to learn about the law and all. I said, no, I don't want that. (laughs) End up in an office. I'm a country boy. I'm a foreign boy. (laughs) Well, I turned him (laughs) down. And a couple of weeks later, I got another call from a different individual. He was a little more of a forceful salesman than the first one. (laughs) He started through the same procedure, and I told him, I'll talk to somebody about that, and I'm not interested. He said, well, you know, it pays pretty good money. And I said, how much? What is it? He said, well, it's $2,980 a year. Okay. I will take it. (laughs) I've never heard of that much money in my life, so I'll take it. I don't care what I'm going to do i it like to go to the VA, but one of the fulfilling experiences of my life. Great. And, well, and I talked to a tremendous number of survivors who have lost loved ones because back in those days, after the telegram was delivered to the family, the military severed all relationships.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that.
1: Hey, no more contact. They had to come to the VA to get the ten thousand dollars life insurance and burial benefits and
0: right, right. And I
1: think uh, the, the death compensation and that sort of thing. So, I sort of uh, I was in charge of one of their offices eventually. And I thought I was trying to do so. Uh, so, I made the practice I personally wanted to talk to those individuals. So. Uh, I guess I talked to almost 100% of them. The other individuals in the office, most of them were not combat veterans, so they hadn't had that experience. Right. I I had more of a relationship to those survivors than Tokyo. Right. Uh, And
0: that
1: went on for months and months after World War II. Uh, eventually, of course, they were basically taken care of, and it dropped off. But even yet, uh long after I started, uh, we would have losses in the military, and, and uh, we'd have the opportunity of system down in um, Right. And-
0: so is that the kind of work that you did in the VA that inspired you uh, to give back and do service through your uh, the foundation that you established, the Woody Williams Foundation. is that is that where the inspiration came from? or is it just always in your heart and soul to to keep giving back like this?
1: Oh, it, it really that, that was the, what really inspired me was <clears throat> for years, uh, the country where uh, population, society, was not uh, given any information other than gold star mother. Uh, The other members of the family, no one ever said gold star dad.
0: Oh, good point, yep.
1: It It started as a gold star mother and just continued that way. So even though there might be a widow and children and sisters and brothers and all of that, nobody ever talked about them they were never involved because the military only dealt with the immediate family right boy, God, that. so uh that's all i knew was just ghost our mother and uh finally i talked to a uh I was making a speech with some city in west virginia and uh, uh one of the individuals in the group was a dad that had lost his son in Afghanistan. So that shows how many years it went by before right. he even thought about both of them.
0: Right.
1: Uh, he, he was a widower, didn't have any relations, no, nobody around him. He didn't know any other Volkswagen or members of any kind lived in a good-sized community. So he's the guy that received the two army guys, you know, the survival assistance officers. Right. He told him that his son had been killed. And he had nobody to talk to. Nobody to... He wasn't a church boy. He didn't have any relationship with, with somebody in the community that he could talk to. And he told me about that. And I thought, when he told me I felt so bad that I had never even thought of a gold star Yeah. I just just couldn't understand it. I decided uh, on the way home from that occasion we've got to do something in our state to honor the families of those, we have 11,774 names on a monument on, on our capital grounds of loved ones that have been lost. And mm-hmm. no one have ever mentioned anything about Gold Star families, even Gold Star mothers. It just wasn't there. And I decided we needed to do something to honor those families. And so that's where the idea came from. And I began developing a plan to get something in this state, thinking only of West Virginia. I wasn't thinking of anybody else or any other state. And uh, finally, I have a couple of grandsons that were much smarter than me. Uh, I got with them and we began working out a plan. Should we get a nonprofit, we didn't have any money, so we decided that might be a way of, of doing this thing. Yeah. So we applied for that, and we had to set a goal. They said, "What? A, what's your ultimate goal for the foundation?" And we said, "Well, a Gold Star Family Memorial Monument in every state." That was all about. And thinking, "Well, if we get one in every state." He would represent all of that family. Uh, yeah. Well, he did the first one in a Buckingham Cemetery uh, that is named for a uh, a, a Marine who uh, got out of the Marine Corps, went into the Navy, and became a SEAL, who made seven trips to Vietnam, had seven Purple Hearts, Navy Cross. Wow. Just yes. like outstanding individual. So uh, they're building a cemetery and they're gonna put his name on it. And I thought, well, that's a good place to put a gold star fan in the monument. And so we finally got it done. We thought we were done. <laughs> what we were supposed to do. <laughs> but it continued to gather momentum and uh I keep saying to whatever, wherever I go, and every speech that I make, this is not about me. It's about the families.
0: That is fantastic, and I and I love um, that you said that they are honoring the families, and I and I think that is so important. Because I wasn't, I didn't think about that either. I think we we think about the person who sacrificed, and we don't think about the sacrifices of the people, um, you know, that were supporting them and loving them and and lost them and so it this has been fascinating to me because we're by doing this we're preserving the story and the legacy of you as a recipient but also you as someone whose selfless service has continued well beyond world war ii and that's what the national medal of honor museum is working to do preserving that legacy and your stories and the things that you're doing even after the medal of honor um and and not just World war ii we're, we're looking at medal of honor recipients from all of the wars We're working on the museum in Arlington, Texas, and then we're also working on a national monument in our nation's capital. So one thing I just want to close with is as we do that and as we preserve your legacy and your story and all the stories of the people who have also been recipients of the Medal of Honor, I want you to look back to rural West Virginia in the early 1940s. What would you say to that young boy with a fake ID, driving a cab, delivering telegrams to now gold star families whose sons had been killed in action, what would you say to that young man?
1: Be proud of who you are. Be proud of those who went before you that provided a way for you to be born in a free country with all the freedoms and privileges that we have because you are actually walking in the footprints of those went before and always remember that you are here because they can no longer be here
0: wow and and i know he you are proud of what you've done and i know that you are selfless and very humble about what you've done and like you mentioned you wear the medal of honor for those who have made the sacrifice so that you can do these things and i love that you're giving back to not just to honor and preserve the memories and the legacies of those who have sacrificed, but their families as well. So I love what the Woody Williams Foundation stands for. Um, And it has been phenomenal to meet you and to spend time with you today. And so thank you for your time. I know that your time is precious and I cannot tell you how honored and humbled I am to have had the opportunity to speak with you um we'll just we'll get over the fact that you know you're in the marines and of course you missed the chance to serve in the better service as the air force but it has been fantastic to hear firsthand about your life of service to our country um not just in combat but also in government service and in the nonprofit sector and i know i speak for all americans when i say that our nation owes you a debt that none of us will ever be able to repay um but we can visit the uh one of the The 50 states that's got the the memorials in there, and I've been looking at the map so I can know where to find one so I can go see one. If anybody wants to learn more about the Woody Williams Foundation, please visit woodywilliams.org. That's woodywilliams.org. And that's it for us today. And to learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, please visit mohmuseum.org. And please join us next time on the Mission Inspire podcast.